Machiavelli was an Italian philosopher and politician. Perhaps you're more familiar with the term Machiavellian. But he is best known for his treaties called The Prince. And this is basically what he's telling us in his treaties, is that to be an effective political ruler, you need to be ruthless and tyrannical. Not empathetic, not just, not to be nice, but to use every single trick to accomplish your means. To be an effective politician. To be an effective ruler. In a sense, his, his philosophy is the ends justify the means. This is his face on an Italian lira, and so he's codified into their money. As a historian, he referenced unscrupulous or nasty people throughout history to demonstrate his principle. He criticized the world for its niceness, mostly because they brought bought into the Christian ideal and Christian story where Jesus is portrayed as nice and always treating people well. In contrast to Machiavelli, who attempts to conquer and to judge with might and any means necessary, Jesus seeks to restore broken relationships with gentleness gentleness. Jesus seeks to restore relationships with gentleness. Jesus establishes the foundation of, of righteousness and justice, which are his character, the foundation of which he says, that is grace. I, this is such an important concept. I'm going to repeat it over and over again. The foundation of righteousness and justice and all of the universe, the way he's created the universe, is that the foundation of that is not obedience. It's not might. It's not power. It's not by doing good. But the foundation of his character, the foundation of all that is right in the world, the foundation that, of true justice is grace. That is revolutionary. That is counter to the way the world, the way the world works. Grace, I want you to understand, is, is this concept of, of God giving people what they don't deserve. Or if you're to be graceful to someone, you give to them what they don't deserve. That's grace. God gives grace because he loves. Because he is love. Grace and love are the foundation of all his character. There is not a characteristic of God that is not loving. It is all love. And all of his character is his righteousness. In 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 3, God tells it this way. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understanding all mysteries and knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain 
nothing. I mean, you could, you could add to this list. If I have all power and might and authority in this world, if I get to rule kingdoms and people, if I have no love, I have nothing. This is because the foundation of all of that is love. God's love is the foundation of his righteousness and justice. And why is that? Because love is the only thing that transforms. Love is the only thing that can transform you. Not might, not power, not obedience. God's love transforms us into people of righteousness. God doesn't give us, doesn't give the people of Israel, doesn't give us, he doesn't give the commandments, the law to them, and think, ha ha, by asking them to obey, they will be transformed into righteousness. We are told that's not why he gives it to us. He actually gives us all those things, the definition of his character, the moral law, so that we can actually see how different we are from him. Not that we actually can obey. The only way that we can obey is that God's love and grace transforms us. Transforms us in our character, into our rights. It transforms us by God, imputes his righteousness upon us on the cross. He gives us, he declares us righteous. Not because of our own deeds, but because of his deeds. And then he gives us his Holy Spirit to begin to transform us because he loves us into that character of love and morality, and righteousness to be more like him. God's love is transformative. Romans 2.4 says, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? This is how God operates. With gentleness and kindness patience, and love to transform you. Now, I know you're thinking, that sounds like me. That's how I live and operate all my life, transforming people. I mean, those are things that don't, I, I want to be like that, but that is not how I operate. I want to be a pastor like that, but that's not how I operate. So many times, I think we operate in Machiavellian terms. Now, I want to pause here for a moment. Don't forget what I'm saying because this is important. But you may be thinking, aren't we going through the gospel of John? Like, haven't been, you've been preaching through the gospel? Why are you suddenly changing? Well, there's a reason why I'm preaching Isaiah 42 today and not John 7, verses 53 through 8, 11. I don't know if you have your Bible or if you have a pew Bible, you could open up to John 7, 53, 8 through 1. The woman caught in adultery, it's a famous passage. You've probably heard it. You probably have told it many ways. But here's the thing. In most of your modern English translations, you're going to see a little bracketed footnote at the top or at the very beginning, at the beginning of that passage. And it's going to say something like this. The earliest manuscripts do not include John 7, 53 through 8, 11. Now you may say, oh, wait a second. What do you mean the earliest manuscripts? What I'm saying is the earliest and most prominent manuscripts that we have of the scriptures do not contain this story. And you may ask, why do we still have it in our Bible then? And that may be making you nervous. 
that we actually don't know what's in the Bible, or it may, may make you nervous on its authority, or its reliability, or the trustworthiness. I want you to say, say to you very confidently, no, it's the exact opposite. The fact that we can have that little phrase gives us more confidence in the Scripture. And because this is Reformation Sunday and the issue is the, the authority of God's word and what is God's word, and I want you to know that my heart as a pastor is to only preach in God's word and to have the full assurance that what I'm going to preach is what God is telling us. And so there we have this little field in uh, academia and, and, and biblical studies called textual criticism. I'm not going to bore you too much with it, but it's somewhat exciting for uh, nerds. So, which I'm is one of them. Is that, so I want you to understand the New Testament was written in Greek. Those manuscripts were hand copied, right? They didn't have Xerox machines. They didn't have printing presses at that time. They were hand copied in various formats and spread throughout the world. Now, we have a lot of manuscripts. I'm going to show you this slide real quick. This will really help you. A lot of manuscripts of the Bible. We have, uh, actually, this slide says 5,600 manuscripts. We have around 5,800, almost 6,000, not fully manuscripts, but partial manuscripts of, of the New Testament. Now, the earliest of those manuscripts is within 50 years of the writing. Now, they kind of spread out between like 500 years, zero to 500 years, but the earliest is around 500, and we have about 19 in that period of, I'm not sorry, of 50 to 100 years of actually the, the original text of when they were written. Now, all the other ancient and Eastern uh, texts that we have that we hold as reliable and, and like we know what we have, we got Homer's Iliad, which we only have about 643 manuscripts. We have uh, Plato's Technologies, which is about 49, and Aristotle's work. We have seven manuscripts of all of them, and we would declare those and teach those in our schools and say, yes. This is what they wrote. And we have over almost 6,000 manuscripts of the New Testament. And of all those other manuscripts, the closest one is Homer's Iliad. And the earliest manuscript we have is about 500 years to the original writing. Nowhere near. There's no other book in ancient nature world that even comes close in magnitude into what we have of Scripture, of this book, of the Bible. Nowhere near. In fact, F.F. Bruce says it this way. I want you to get your mind around uh, how this works. It says, if the great number of manuscripts increases the number of scribal errors, it increases proportionally the means of correcting such errors so that the margin of doubt left in the process of recovering the exact original is, in truth, remarkably small. So let me let you understand. So there is an original that was written. We don't have the originals. But in that original, someone copied it to pass it on, and so they might have made multiple copies, and the multiple copies get spread out. Now, you can imagine if you ever handwritten something or hand-copied something, you might make a mistake. And those mistakes happen. So it gets spread out, and then that copy gets copied, and that copy gets copied, and so you have these trees of copies that are going out. And so if you just had a few of those, you would say, okay, we could see some of the errors going along the way, and we might be able to ascertain what the originals say. But the more copies you have, it actually gives you more confidence in actually saying what was the original. 
And so because we have so many copies, we could actually trace and see how the errors were made and when they were made and what manuscript they were made. And the reality, if one error was made in one area, that er error got copied and copied and copied. And if it wasn't, so we could actually see how those er uh, errors were made and how they were copied. And here's the thing. This is really fascinating. Because of the vast manuscripts that we have, even the most liberal biblical scholars would say that we have 99.9% .9 of what the original text would say, with no doubt and no confusion. Now, not all those people would believe that the Bible is the Word of God, but the actual text of the New Testament, we say we are fully confident. And any error that there is, or question is insignificant into the meaning or into the narrative, or it'd be like an article that was just lost, like an A or a the. That's how accurate and exciting. So for me to actually get that into the seminary and to study that, that's actually exciting, although you're just glad that someone else has done a lot of the work, even though you can jive in to do a little bit of it. I just want to tell you that it should give you trustworthiness and the reliability that we actually have the New Testament and we are confident in what it is. So I want you to breathe and realize, sorry, like, yes, we know what scripture is. Now, here's the thing. The woman caught in adultery has this little, not caught in, not in the earliest manuscripts. Here's what I'm going to say to you. Uh, these are actually Piper's summary reasons, but you can look at any scholar that would say this, is that the woman caught in adultery, this passage, was missing from the, from the Greek manuscripts all before the 5th century. So before the 5th century, this passage was not included in the Greek manuscripts, and we can clearly see it. The earliest church fathers that were in that time, which would use the Bible and they would comment it, they never commented on this passage. Why? Because they never had to. It wasn't there, so they didn't comment it. And if you actually read the text in John from 752, where we ended last week, and we go to 812, it actually flows a lot better. And actually, the, the words uh, that he uses in that passage, in this story of the woman caught in adultery, it's actually words that John doesn't really use elsewhere, and it's not his way that he would normally talk. So it doesn't seem to fit in the, what John would have written. And when it does appear, when this passage does appear in the manuscripts, it actually appears in all different places. There's three different places of John that it appears, and then sometimes it actually appears in Luke in the manuscript. So we know that this is a little bit weird. So why is it in your Bible? <laughs> why do you have this note? Well, here's the thing. Jerome translated the Greek into Latin at 382, and he used a variant and a later manuscript that contained this passage, and so he put it in. And so the King James was translated from Latin into English in 1611. They used the manuscripts of which they had, the reality is, since that time, we have discovered a lot more manuscripts that have showed us what is in and what is not in the Scripture. And this passage, including the end of Mark, are the big significant ones that are not in the original manuscripts. Here's the summary. I don't have full assurance that this passage, the woman caught adultery, is in the Word of God, or is the Word of God. And be, it might be. But because I don't have full assurance... I'm not going to preach on it. It's that plain and simple. Because I take the word of God that seriously. And I know you do as well too. And I know this church does as well too. But here's the other thing. Almost all the scholars would actually say, we actually think this story 
of the woman caught in adultery is true. Because there's other stories that are similar to it outside of Scripture that seem to, to tell that story in the same way. And most times when things are excluded from the Bible, we can see things that are excluded, the stories are excluded. They're so outlandish and so crazy. Like, it doesn't even pertain to the rest of the Scripture or to the, the rest of the theme of Scripture. This story actually does pertain. So here's what I'm going to do today. And this is why I picked Isaiah 42. I actually want to preach on the themes of the woman cult and adultery. And I'm going to use other scriptures to show how this theme is prevalent in scripture. And here's what I'm going to tell you. This message is, uh, is continuous in the rest of the Bible, this woman cult and adultery. And here's the message. Jesus is gentle with sinners. Jesus is gentle. And you see the woman caught in adultery... The scribes and Pharisees, what do they want to do? They want to test Jesus, and they want to uphold him to the letter of law. See if he will uphold to the letter of law. They're not interested in justice, but they're interested in trapping Jesus. They have no care, and they have no love towards the woman who was sinning. And they don't care about the man who was sinning, which both would have been equally guilty under the law. But what does that passage say? Jesus sees the sinner, and he reaches out to her. Isn't that the message of scripture? Jesus sees you and I in sin and he doesn't forsake us. He's gentle and kind and reaches out to us. Love and gentleness is the foundation of righteousness. Isaiah 42, 1 through 4, it says, this, this is a passage that begins to introduce us in Isaiah to the suffering servant Uh, That goes all the way through Isaiah uh, 53 and 54 and beyond. And here it is. It says, behold my servant. Behold my servant. Whom I uphold. My chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit, capital S, upon him. He will bring justice, forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. And a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. God describes this this Savior as a servant. In comparison to the world around him, all the idols... God gave his people a servant to care for him, to tend for him, to, to, to care and tend for his people. And it says God will bring forth his justice to all people, to all the nations, not just to Israel. And then God reveals his character in this passage. You see, this is Machiavellian, like the, the means justify the ends. A God for God and this way the world works is the means are just as important as the end. If the end is the righteousness and the love of God, then the means is the same as the ends. It's the way you get there. God's righteousness and his love. The means demonstrate the ends. If the end is righteousness, God will demonstrate that through gentleness and love, and grace. Because the foundation of righteousness is grace. 
He gives him this incredible metaphor imagery that we have is this brood re- bruised reed will not break. I, I, I mean, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the bruised reed, but if you think of marshy lands where we have these kind of tall grains of stalk, of, of grass, right? If it's bruised, it's, it's, it's bent and soft, and if it's easily broken. It's easily torn apart. And so we have this image of this bruised reed, this bruised grass in which Jesus knows that it is, you have to be careful with it. It's easily broken. Hence, he holds it gently. Jesus will not break us. Jesus is going to restore us. And then the other imagery of a smoldering wick, you know, when a wick has, the light has gone out and there's a faint ember to it, right? You could quickly blow it out harshly and it would extinguish it even finally. You could take your fingers and squash it out. But this imagery that you have to treat it gently and that, that Jesus is going to blow on us those that are fading away in our light. And he's going to blow gently to get that ember to light up again and to go in full glory. Now Jesus is gentle and kind to his people. Jesus will blow life back into us and relight our flame. Jesus will establish justice for all people, not just Israel. And how does he do this? Jesus does this by changing us from the inside out. He declares us righteous. He gives us the Holy Spirit. And what does the Holy Spirit do? We have this Holy Spirit begins to bear fruit in our lives, begins to work in our lives from the inside out. And so we have these fruits of the Spirit, which are not described as harsh or mean or powerful, but gentle and kind and self-control and loving, faithful. This is the work of God. This is who God is. This is the gentle and loving Jesus of the work in us. And so when this is the work, this is the gentle work that Jesus gives to the adulterous woman. He's gentle with her. He's kind with her. This is the kind of work that he does with you and I, sinners, with our lust-filled hearts, people that are liars and slanderers, people that are warmongers. He's gentle and kind and patient, long-suffering with us. The foundation of righteousness is grace. There is no exception. There is no exception to this. Piper actually will say, he calls it this way, he says it this way, he says, we are called to be holy as God is holy. God hates sin. But pursuing holiness without a profound experience of grace in our lives produces hypocrisy and doctrinal cruelty. I want you to understand that very clearly. That if you and I try to live a life of righteousness, of holiness, to try to be good, what that will produce in us is a life of hypocrisy. We won't be able to live it. It will produce in us a legalism in our life. It will produce in us death. If we try to live a life where we lead people in that way and try to get them to obey in that capacity, it will create hypocrites, legalists, and even more 
sinners. But what God has established is that he institutes only grace transforms into righteousness. Only love can transform in righteousness because you and I do not work in our righteousness. It's God that works in us and for us and through us for our righteousness. Only grace produces righteousness. Only love produces righteousness. So you can think about, man, how do we have uh, as political leaders, how do we think about that? How do we think as parents, how do we lead in that capacity? How do we think as pastors, how do we lead in that capacity? Only grace transforms. The rest harms. The rest hurts. The world doesn't produce righteousness in us. The law doesn't produce righteousness in us. Obedience doesn't produce righteousness. They only produce cruelty to ourselves and to others. It only produces legalism and hypocrisy in ourselves. Grace, God's unmerited love, produces righteousness. This is the gospel. I hope you understand that clearly. This is the good news. God's work produces a work in us. And that gentle work in our broken souls transforms us. Now that you got it, you got that phrase. Only grace produces righteousness. You're going to repeat it throughout this week and throughout your days. Only love transforms. All right, so if God seeks us in gentle ways in broken relationships, here's the thing. God is creating in us characters to be Christ-like, to do the same thing. To live out grace-filled, love-filled lives that transforms people. So we are to be people to seek and to restore broken relationships with gentleness in this world. This is a practical outline of this principle of righteousness through grace. We are to people's people to seek and to restore broken relationships in our lives with gentleness. 2 Corinthians 10.1 I, Paul, myself, entreat you by meekness and gentleness of Christ. I, who am humble when face to face with you, but bold to you when I'm away. It's the same way what he said in Romans 2.4, which I quoted earlier, that God's kindness and gentleness is meant to produce transformation and repentance. And Paul is saying here, and the thing about Paul is that if you read some of his writing, particularly his, the first letter to Corinthians, he's really tough on them. Like, it is a really kind of a harsh letter, but yet Paul says, like, when I'm face to face with you, I'm going to be kind and gentle. I'm going to have some hard things to say to you, and that doesn't mean that it's not gentle at times. You can have hard things to say in gentle ways, Paul, a little bit in 2 Corinthians, is a little bit apologizing for his tone uh, in 1 Corinthians, but getting to the same point. Point is, is when we seek to store broken relationships, when we seek to see broken people, as Paul's saying, we need to have gentleness and meekness in our life. So we are to seek to broken relationship with gentleness. We are to address the sin of others with gentleness. Galatians 6.1, Brothers, is anyone caught in any transgression? Yet who, yet you who are spiritually should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Part of our role, part of the body of Christ is the, the, the ordinary way in which God works. The sanctification is through the body of Christ, through the Holy Spirit working through each other, is that we actually get to 
judge each other in not condemnation way, but to help each other be accountable and to transform, to point each other's sin out. That doesn't sound very fun, does it? But he says, be said, do it gently. Do it in love. Because the reality is that all of us, as, as a pastor, I've told you, I want to be accountable to you, and I want to be accessible to you. I want to just expose my heart to you, and I want you to call me out on things so I can change. But I want you to be gentle. <laughs> just as I want to be gentle with you and you to be gentle with each other in this capacity. For those that don't know Jesus, we don't call them out on all their specific sins. That's not what we do. What we do is call them out on the sin and we lead them to Christ because the sin is not trusting Jesus, not knowing who God is. And all the other sins in our life is a, a, a symptom of that one sin. But we do that with gentleness. We are to instruct our opponents and enemies with gentleness. I don't know if you knew you had enemies or opponents. 2 Timothy 2, 24, 25, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them for repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. All those that oppose us, all those that are our bitter enemies, what are we to do? We are to correct them with gentleness and kindness. All of that, why? So that God actually may transform them and lead them to repentance. We are modeling Isaiah 42 in our lives to all people, even when they oppose us or hostile to us. And goes on, with everyone, with everyone, we ever have a posture of gentleness. With everyone, we are to have a posture of gentleness. Titus 3, 1 through 2. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Some people? All people. People that deserve it? All people. We are to be gentle. We are not to be quarrelsome with them. We are not to speak evil of anyone. We are to be gentle. Be courteous to all people. Doesn't this seem just like a different world than we live in? And we speak, it seems like a different world than I operate each and every day, a different world that I see on the media every day. This is a different way of living. And what I want you to understand is the way that we experience, the way that we witness in the world, the way that we see it on social media, and the, and the way we interact in our workplaces, that is not transformative. That does not lead to righteousness. Only grace. Only grace. Only love. And the last, we are to share the good news of Jesus with gentleness. 1 Peter 3, 15 through 17. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. 
For it's better to suffer for doing good, if that is, should be God's will, than for doing evil. Gentleness and respect. You see, there's a major theme here throughout all Scripture in who we are to be. More than that, who our God is. The mighty, all-powerful God. The only one we should fear. And yet his command is, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. I am gentle. I am kind. I am patient. I love. Jesus reestablished the foundation of righteousness as grace. This is what he does in the New Testament. The Pharisees and all of them, they understood righteousness. They just didn't understand the foundation of righteousness. And Jesus is really explaining to them once again, it's grace and love is the foundation of my character. A grace that is expressed in immeasurable gentleness and love to a broken and sinful people. You see, Jesus doesn't come to condemn. Jesus comes to be condemned for broken people. This is his grace. This is his gentleness. We are transformed into righteousness to sin no more. And nowhere and more in contrast into the way of the world and to the way of God than that moment on the cross where the world is the least gentle it could be and nails the most gentle, the most gentle on the cross. The response to grace is repentance. God's grace and gentleness produce repentance. A penitent life looks like Jesus' life, which is gentle. We are being transformed from Machiavellian humans into a new humanity, and that is Christ-likeness. Brothers and sisters, may God lead us to being gentle and loving followers of him. Let us pray. Gracious Father, I am so thankful for your gentleness. I'm so thankful that you are kind and patient to a people that don't deserve patience or kindness or gentleness. I'm so thankful for your love. A love that I miss more often than not. I'm so thankful that this is a love that is transformative in our hearts and in our lives and in this world. I'm thankful that you, you have structured this universe in this way and this, all the world works in this capacity. That love transforms. That your grace transforms. Lord, continue to lead us in that transformation. Continue to make us more Christ-like day in and day out. Continue to help us to be open to accountability and to be accessible to others so that they can call us an account that your spirit can work through them to help us be more gentle. And their gentle rebuke, help us to be more gentle, to be more like you. Lord, help us to love the world as you love it. Help us to love our neighbors in that capacity as well. We pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. amen.